open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. And it takes a little while to get there, but don't forget that's where we're going. That's one. start off, because uh, I get started on the Potter's Wheel here a little bit, um, with a story. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was a true story. Uh, it's about a young man that uh, had just gotten saved. He's probably late teens, early 20s, something like that. Um, and he got saved, and uh, right away, kind of like me in a way, like I said, uh, I was much older, but this young man was led to go to Bible school. And uh, within a few weeks, he found himself enrolled in, in a Bible school somewhere. And um, he'd been in class for maybe a couple weeks, and something was troubling him, and he couldn't actually explain what it was that was troubling him. It was a kind of confusing thing. He just had this unsettled uh, feeling about it. Something, something wasn't quite right. Um, you know, he just got saved. He was very excited and all that. So he started uh, talking to different of his professors, set up some meetings with them and had a little, tell them how, tried to express how best he could, that uneasy, unsettled feeling uh, that he was experiencing and trying to see if they could help him and make some sense of it, maybe he actually even verbalize what it was he was going through. And so he, he saw these professors individually and uh, kind of after talking with several of them, individually, he kind of distilled all their advice to him down into two words. That's basically what they told him. You just need to let God. That was it. Uh, and maybe, maybe that was a feeling he was trying to express, like he felt he was totally surrendered, but maybe he wasn't totally surrendered. I'm not sure. I'm just kind of imagining myself. But those were the two words he came up with. He said, you know what, I've gotten all this, and maybe some of those professors actually said those very words. You need to let God. So he took those six letters, those two words, he cut them out, uh, tried to demonstrate that. As a matter of fact, what he did, let me see if I can do this while my hands are all greasy, full of clay here. Greasy? No, greasy, just muddy. Yeah, he usually draw this in. He actually took those things and tacked him up on his wall. All right? Let God. And he would go around his apartment uh, just repeating those words over and over, sometimes out loud, sometimes in his mind. I just need to let God. I just need to let God. Okay? He, it got to the point he's still not feeling any sense of relief. Nothing has changed. He's actually starting to get angry when he's looking at those words and repeating them in his mind. And so uh, he decides he just needs to get away from those words. And he, he decides, I'm, I'm going out for a long walk. I'm just getting away as far as I can from him. He actually slams the door on his way out of his apartment. <laughs> he goes for this long walk. And in the meantime, he kind of cooled off. And uh, as he's cooled off, uh, he comes back. And finally, he'd been gone so long. Uh, it was daylight when he left. But uh, when he returned, it was actually dark out. He had actually had to uh, flip on the light switch in his apartment, 
Uh, so, so dark in there. And what happened was he looked up on the wall where those words were, and it must have been when he slammed that door, created a backdrop, and one of those letters <laughs> fell off. And you know what? He had a brand new message. Let go. And see, you got to let go and let God. Right. And that's what I want to preach a little bit on uh, this evening, wow. letting go and letting God. Now, I'm going to, I brought some vessels up here, and Asher did this vessel as well, because I want to talk about pottery right away instead of waiting to the end of the message here. But I want to talk about pottery in, in the terms of, uh, we've been talking about the fact that God made us out of clay. And hopefully that he's taken some of that raw clay that he's dug up out of the ground. Uh, I'm talking about you as individuals. And he's going to fashion you and mold you and shape you into that, hopefully one day what he would call that vessel unto honor. One that sanctified and meets for the master who is prepared unto every good work. That's what God wants to do. Shape us into a vessel. Now, I want you to think about something that maybe you haven't thought about it this way before, but just think about vessels. Vessels of clay. I brought a bunch of assorted vessels up here. And you should be able to describe different vessels, literal vessels of clay, like I'm going to show you in a minute. And you should be able to cite characteristics of those vessels that you might apply to a human vessel. Get my point? For example, this is a pretty simple, plain vessel. You know what? Some people are kind of simple and plain, just ordinary, nothing special about them. Now, this one does happen to have some scripture on it, but it's also very subtle. So it could remind you of someone, you know, sometimes when I go out on the street, especially street preaching, stuff like that, churches have organized street preaching like you had Saturday. Sometimes people are wearing a t-shirt or something that's got, you know, Jesus saves or some scripture on it, something like that. So that kind of reminds me of, of maybe some of those people, something like that. And here's another fairly plain vessel. Uh, this one's shaped a little different. It's also got scripture on it, but it also has a certain shape to it. And it's, it's, uh, it's an oil lamp, okay, an oil candle. But you know what I like about this one? I can describe some characteristics of this vessel that I can apply to people I see in this room. It's kind of tiny. It's petite. Okay? Uh, again, characteristics we can all describe of other people. Uh, here's a vessel. Now, I don't know if you've got a chance to look at this much. I made this vessel. The shape is very plain. It's got a very incredibly intricate repeating pattern on it, which is a design. There's actually a scripture verse carved in along with all these other carvings. This is supposed to uh, represent, because it was influenced by, uh, I think in 2010, we were doing a ministry loop from, uh, from North Carolina, where we were situated at the time, and we worked our way out to uh, the Los Angeles area and then worked our way back. Uh, took a couple months, and we, of course, went through New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona, places like that, and we saw the American Indians out there, and that was the influence. If you saw their pottery, it is amazing. You would swear, maybe some of you have some of that, you would swear it was done by a machine. What they do is they take a very plain, simple shape like this, but they put a very intricate, precise, repeating pattern around it. You know what else they do? They decorate the whole bottom. And the pieces that I saw in several of the gift shops and galleries, if they were much larger than this, they were actually decorated on the inside as well with that same precision and preciseness. It's just, it blows you away. 
Now, you know what I attribute that to? That desire to put that decoration on places where most people will never see it? I, I, I give credit to that for the race that they came out of. See, the, when that ark landed, uh, there were three races that came off that ark, Noah's ark, right? And those three races are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And those three races of people have differences, all right? And most of the American Indians are derivatives of the tribe of Shem, all right? Those are, that's the Jewish nation as well. Those Shemites are more spiritual. And I think it's demonstrated in the way the American Indians do their decorating. Because you know what? They're concerned about the inside of the vessel. Just like God is more concerned with the inside of our vessel than yeah. is this exterior yeah. appearance that we are all consumed about. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When's the last time you took a selfie of your outward appearance? And have you ever taken one of something inside of you? <laughs> Unless you visit a doctor's office or something. <laughs> have a camera shoved down your throat. And some of you have experienced that, I guess. I virtually have not. So what would I say about this vessel that would describe a person? I would say perfectionist. That's one of the things I get from that. Uh, here's another vessel. This is one I just brought out. I, I carry this around with me because it's not something I made, uh, but a, it's a friend of mine, a potter I've known for many years. He passed away a few years ago. And uh, this is typical of his work. And I, I love his work. It's, it's elegant. And it's, it's Simple. I, you know, I think when I think of this and compare it to a person, it reminds me of someone that's very stately. Is, it, is this just the word I come up with? I don't know. I like like. I mean, it's kind of a feminine shape to me, and it reminds me of a, a woman I might see walking downtown uh, New York City that's got a business suit on or something all prim and proper. You know what I mean? Those are the kind of characteristics I think about when I think of, of this. So I've been doing all the talking. Now I'd like you to give me some input. What do you think about when you see this vessel? Give me one characteristic of that vessel that you might apply to a person. Anybody? Unfinished. What's that? Unfinished. Unfinished. Very good. Why, why don't I finish it? And then we'll see if it, you got other something else to say. Ooh. Must be perfectly centered to go that fast. <laughs> it's a good thing. When I step on that wheel accidentally and it's out around at all, it takes off big time. Pastor Schoolfields when I've been wearing this. <laughs> so I'm not going to do a whole lot to it, but I am going to finish it. I want you to be thinking about a characteristic or two that you might describe this vessel. Somebody that has a lot of things going on in their self, a lot of okay. you know, restraints. 
Any any other words you could use? I know one of you young people have a phrase for this. What was called unusual? that? Unusual? Huh? Unusual? Yeah, unusual. Who said Messed that? Messed up. <laughs> I'm talking, telling these guys up here, what's, what comes to your mind when you see that? Unusual. <laughs> you know what I hear? Messed up. <laughs> Messed up. Uh, Not perfect. This looks like a big work on that person right there. I mean, I can say a lot of things about this. When I see this, and I know this is maybe not be a politically correct word, but, you know, um, I think of something that's maybe feeble or retarded is the not politically correct word. But, you know, I, I worked with uh, mildly retarded young men in Fort Lauderdale for a few years as a, when I was kind of a social worker. And a lot of them had some physical deformities and stuff like that, as well as mental deformities and things like that. Well, you know, instead of me saying and you saying what we think about that, oh my gosh, we're good. I think I actually left my Bible off of my... This is like really embarrassing. I left my Bible off of my coach. Oh, mercy. I, have, I just have to go get it. Okay, no problem. I got two Bibles, and I was actually, I told you I had a new Bible. I'm transferring the notes. I took them out, out there to transfer them. So why don't you guys come up and sing a song? Okay. <laughs> All right. Give me a minute to go back there and get it. Uh, this is really, it never happened to me before. Especially when I had my wife on the road with me. You know, make sure I was dressed and everything when I left. <laughs> so let me scoot out there. Do you want to right. come up and just sing a song real quick? Please? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you can find one. How about half time on the way over? <laughs> let go and let go. <laughs> Be thou my vision.
I am parked close by. <laughs> I am. That's, that's, I apologize for that. That's so sad. Uh -huh. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 12, this is where we're going to find out what God thinks of this vessel here. The one that I think is kind of feeble, and maybe whatever. So it says here in 1 Corinthians 12, we'll pick it up in verse 14. The Bible says, for the body is not one member, but many. Skip down to verse 18. But now have God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. Skip down to verse 21. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Verse 24, for our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. So what I'm getting from those verses is, God appreciates a vessel like this. God can use a vessel like this because maybe unlike this vessel, which when I see this, I see someone, because of its kind of ornate nature and the way it's kind of bulged out and so forth, this vessel, what I see in it, if I had to pick one characteristic, would be pride, okay? And I know I made it that way to be able to give it that characteristics. Now, not that this proud vessel would ever ask this vessel, that humble, lowly vessel, for any advice. <laughs> but if it did, that vessel would probably have two words to say to this vessel. It would say, what you need to do is let go. Let go and let God. And the good news is, God uses broken things. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Amen. Now, I hope you don't have to ask me why I broke that. Some of the kids do. Why did he break that? I broke that so you remember. God uses broken things. And I enjoy the heck out of that. Two seconds of pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Proverbs chapter 6, doctrinally speaking, um, this would not apply to us because it's, and you'll see why in a minute, but uh, spiritually speaking, the application is right on because you and I have a wicked heart, okay? Yes. So, uh, Proverbs chapter 6, get verse 12 is where we're going to start. The Bible says, a naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a forward mouth. He winketh with his eyes. He speaketh with his feet. He teacheth with his fingers. Forwardness is in his heart, and he deviseth mischief continually, so in discord. Verse 15, Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. Now the reason I say that doctrinally uh, this doesn't apply to us because you and I, from time to time, believe me, we need to be broken the good news is you and I do have a remedy. And that remedy is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, amen. So that's the difference. But I want to emphasize the fact that 
God uses broken things. So I want you to think about some broken things that he's used. Uh, we've got examples of that, like uh, you may recall Gideon was asked to take his 300 men and destroy the 135,000 Midianites. And what was the battle strategy? They were each given an earthen pitcher. Inside that earthen pitcher was a burning lamp. Uh, and they were told, and they, then they had a trumpet the other hand. I think you, you know the story because I mentioned it already this week. But listen, uh, they were told at some point to break the earthen pitcher, right? Yeah. And that battle strategy wouldn't have been quite the same if they wouldn't have broken that earthen pitcher. Which, by the way, obviously demonstrates the battle strategy, demonstrates... The fact that God can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. But it also shed light on the fact that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And I gave you the cross-reference from uh, that Judges chapter 7, the whole thing about Gideon. And that verse that says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And that treasure is a picture of the light. And sometimes for the light to shine through, the vessel needs to be broken. All right, God uses broken things. He obviously, when Christ fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two small fishes, uh, before he, uh, after he blessed that bread, he broke the bread. Now, that's the only miracle uh, that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. Kind of interesting. Uh, demonstrates God's awesome power, but also demonstrates the fact that God's grace is available to every human being. Not just the saved. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. That's God's grace, and that's how abundant and overwhelming and awesome his grace is. How about when uh, in Luke chapter 10, this is something I taught on last year, and we mentioned uh, when Jesus Christ is visiting the house of Mary in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He's visiting that house, and uh, another uh, a historical event also uh, recorded in all four Gospels, but this is a historical event. Uh, and that woman, Mary, took that uh, very precious ointment of spikenard. It was in an alabaster box. And when we read the account in the Gospel of Mark, Marcus tells us that Mary had to break the box, or at least break the seal, is the way I interpret that, to get that ointment out of there. Obviously, an example of uh, uh, sacrificial love on Mary's part, uh, also an example of God using broken things, but also another example of the fact that uh, the one thing most needful, and when we read that account in Luke, it talks about our fellowship, our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, according to that account in Luke chapter 10, is the one thing most needful in the life of a Christian. That's your personal relationship, your personal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Paul's shipwreck in Acts chapter 27. You know, he's on this ship uh, getting ready to sail to Rome so that he can appear before Caesar and, uh, and be tried. And uh, he gets on this ship out of uh, Egypt, I believe, which is, that's not a good thing. Anything out of Egypt is usually a bad thing. He gets on this ship, and in that account, which covers almost the entire chapter of Acts 27, that ship right away encounters this incredibly uh, powerful, large uh, storm. And those sailors are battling that storm for weeks. And they're casting all the lading overboard, and casting all the cargo overboard, and doing everything they can to lighten the ship and actually control it. And uh, during that voyage, especially during the middle of that storm, 
Paul is visited by, a, 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 I think it's an angel, and that angel says something to the effect of, you know, don't worry, you and all that are on this ship will be saved, so we'll survive. Uh, and once Paul is reassured of that, he informs the crew, listen, you haven't eaten for like two weeks because you've been so busy battling the storm. So Paul got some bread and so forth, uh, blessed it, broke it, and then distributed it to the crew so they had a little more strength because he knew that shortly they would need that strength. So I think it's the last 10 verses of Acts 27. The word broken is actually used three times. Once when Paul blessed the bread and broke it. Uh, the second time when the ship itself got stuck in some of the lower waters that they were nearing land. And it says something about the hinder part uh, stuck, or the fore part stuck fast. And the hinder part was unmovable or something like that. And all of a sudden the ship started to break apart or was broken. And then the last usage of the word broken in that account is when it says that uh, some of those sailors actually floated to shore on broken pieces of the ship. And I like the third usage, is one of my favorite uses of the word broken in our King James Bible, because that particular use of the word broken, and I think it's broken pieces, is italicized. And I, I hope you all know that the King James Bibles, in their honesty, in their transparency, when they came across uh, using the manuscripts they had, and they felt led by the Holy Spirit that even though they didn't have a manuscript that would support the insertion of a particular word or words, but somehow led by the Holy Spirit of God, they felt that they should add that word or words. They italicized them to let you know this is kind of from us. It's not something we've got like literal physical proof for. Okay, that's the way I'm saying it. When in fact now over the years, the last 400 years that our Bible's been around, 400, what now, 12, uh, there have been archeological finds in which they've discovered some other manuscripts and every single time, never has there been anything that has contradicted anything that uh, was italicized in our Bible. Just to the contrary, they have found other manuscripts that actually support the italicized words in our Bible. You know, uh, I'm going to deviate here since I have my Bible. Uh, I maybe I shouldn't do that. But turn to Luke chapter 4. Again, I hope this is nothing more than a reminder to y'all. And I hope you don't mind reminders. Luke chapter 4, I believe it's verse 4, mm -hmm. Luke 4, 4, and Jesus answered him saying, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now go back to Deuteronomy 8, 3. Genesis, Exodus, Luke, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8.3 And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know 
that man doth not live by bread only, but by every italicized word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So do you realize what you were reading in Luke chapter 4? I think if you had a red letter Bible, those would have been in red letters. Because the Jesus Christ is quoting from that, he's quoting an italicized word in the Old Testament. And here it is in the New Testament, and it's not italicized. I guess my point is this, if Jesus Christ believed in the italicized words, then I do too. And of course, there's a lot of other uh, supporting evidence for the inspiration of God's italicized words. Listen, the point is this, God uses broken things. It says uh, in another part of Luke 4, Jesus said this, he hath sent me, talking about God the Father, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. King David said in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. All right. Some of the times the things that we have to be broken of or broken from are pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's easy for us to let go of those things. So I've got a little teaching I want to do, but before I actually do that, well, let me me just do this little teaching and we'll give some scripture references here. When I was, this is part of my personal testimony, when I was uh, in kindergarten, and that's the earliest I can remember back, I had this uh, disability. I was labeled with. I was labeled as shy. You say, well, that's not a disability. No, it's not. And it's really uh, not a cute little three-letter innocent word. And I bet I'm not, I don't know if you get people, and I hope. Uh, let me put it this way: If you think of yourself, or your children, or your parents, or whatever, or your friends as being shy, and that's how you label them. I want to tell you something. It's not a theory of mine. This is my personal testimony. That's a cute little three-letter word ending in Y that is not innocent as it seems. And we use it as an excuse. And to make this understandable, what I'm saying, I'm going to relate it to another simple three-letter word ending in Y, and that word is gay. Now, Don't get ahead of me, because I'm not comparing anyone that's gay with anyone that's shy. I'm just talking about the fact that they're both three-letter words. They end in Y, and they seem simple and innocent. So we know this is not an innocent word. Uh, Let me put it this way. There were men that got together, I believe it was in a hotel room in Chicago in the 60s, I remember, I read their book, it's called The Marketing of Evil. And they actually came up, they met together, these were like-minded men of this persuasion, and their goal is to come up with a term for their uh, preferences that would be more palatable to the ears, okay? Of course, they wouldn't use the Bible term, which is sodomite, because most people don't even know what that means. The term that was prevalent back then in the 60s was homosexual. 
All right? And even, I'll, tell, I'll be honest with you. I even, it, it, was, it was hard for me to even say that word back then. And you know what? Actually, when you think of homo sapien and things like that, this is more of a, a biological or a clinical term. Uh, but they didn't like it because it had a negative connotation. Whereas this, that's easy. I'll tell you what. In 2000, I'm pretty sure it was 2012, uh, I had a meeting not too far from Niagara Falls in the Buffalo, New York area. Now, earlier that year, New York had passed the law to legalize same-sex marriage. That law went into effect on that July 1st or whenever it was that I was passing through New York doing a meeting up there. And I recall the next day in the paper, and it was a Sunday paper, the front page was all about uh, the same-sex couples that all rushed to Niagara Falls because they wanted to be the very first to be legally married, married at that traditional wedding site for heterosexuals, okay? And the next day, the paper was just filled with gay this, gay that, gay, 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 gay. Now, to most people, that just goes in one ear and out the other. It's no big deal. But what if they had used a more descriptive word like <laughs> sexual pervert? That grates on your ears a little bit and, and your mind, and that's not uncomfortable. And that's the power of words. So this is what I want to talk about, not that. I will tell you, my own experience is when someone says they are shy... What they're really saying is they are self-conscious. And you say, well, that's too bad, but that's not that bad. Yeah, it is. God wants you to be God-conscious, not self-conscious. Guess what? He wants you to be God-absorbed and not self-absorbed. I'll tell you what. Self-consciousness, shyness, is not another word for someone that's self-willed. And if you want to get down to it, really, it's more about someone who is self-centered, okay? Again, this is and was me. Now, I've gotten over this to a great degree because when, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I certainly did last year, one of my hang-ups was always getting up in front of people. That about killed me to have to go out there and get that byline. That's terrible. But what are you going to do? You know? Sometimes I think I should take some of this clay and just rub it all over my face and get it over with because, you know, kind of break the ice with y'all a little bit. Because I remember once uh, uh, preaching at uh, maybe second year in ministry, I'm preaching at a big church uh, charity up there in uh, Dayton, Ohio, and a pretty big congregation. And uh, I went back here, I left a chart back there, and when I'm back there, I kind of just rubbed my nose that was itching. I didn't realize I had a bunch of clay on my finger. I come back. I got this like mustache, kind of like a little Adolf Hitler mustache, you know? <laughs> and my wife is out there going, doing all these things. I don't, I don't know what she's doing. I thought she was cheering me on or something. <laughs> trying to tell me, you know. So sometimes I think what I'm, my point I'm making without deviating further is, listen, uh, the only reason I can overcome that label that I had is getting over these things and recognizing, hey, if I do make a fool of myself, if I misquote a verse, if I have to forget I, my Bible out there, well, so be it. I'm, I'm just a, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing, I'm a man, all right? And we make mistakes. And if, if that offends you or displeases you or, or uh, you, I lose, what's the word, credibility with you, I can't help that. 
All I'm up here, my goal is to do whatever I can, try to do my best, believe it or not, for the Lord. And with that idea in mind, I don't have, I take the focus off of me and just try to keep it on him. And fortunately for me, and I'll be honest with you, I am so busy up here doing this and this, I, I really haven't paid too much attention to y'all. <laughs> so, but I appreciate a church like this where there's liberty. I was telling pastor that earlier on. And sometimes that causes me the freedom to wander. <laughs> but it causes, hopefully, the freedom for the Holy Spirit to say what it wants to say through me. If I'll just relax and let him do that. You know, for eight to nine years, I think Jan uh, Kip could attest to this because I did meetings at their church during my first couple years of ministry. And I know back then, my wife used to, every time I came down off the pulpit, she said, David, why are you so angry? And I go, I am not angry. I am terrified, <laughs> you know. And I was still too self-centered, self-focused. I remember in, uh, I remember in eighth grade, Eighth grade, uh, I back then you just went to school. They told you what classes you were going to take, and I would sign up for a speech class. Hey, I would never get up for people and say anything. I never did. We were assigned in the first half of the year to write some poems and things like that. And I think the second half of the year we were assigned a speech to write or something like that. And at the last three or four weeks of school, the teacher had set enough time where every student would get up and have an opportunity to maybe just read or quote their speech. I think you just had to read it. I never went up there. And I don't remember the excuses I gave the three or four times that the instructor called on me, but I do remember this, and I'll never forget it. I actually remember the teacher's name, Mr. Thorson, and when he called me that last time and I gave my flimsy excuse, I wasn't ready or not prepared or something, he looked at me and the blood began to rise and the veins in his neck and his forehead started to bulge and he pointed his finger and he said, your brain must be as smooth as a rubber ball. And I don't even, what's this guy talking about? Like, you know, come to find out, when you are born, your brain is really smooth, but every time you have a thought, it puts a wrinkle in your brain. And he's telling me my brain is like a cue ball. <laughs> Perfectly smooth, no wrinkles. Listen, this is all about being selfish, really. When you are a teenager, and even into your 20s, probably your 30s, you are always wondering, what are people thinking about me? As you get older, 40s, 50s, you realize, well, actually, you don't care what people are thinking about you. You just don't care anymore. And then when you get into your 60s and 70s, you realize nobody's thinking about you. <laughs> you know, and that's pretty much the truth. And it was really that way back when you were in your teens. You just didn't know it. They're really not thinking about yeah. you. They're probably thinking the same thing you're thinking. What's that person thinking about me? They're not thinking about you. So, hopefully we can learn from this. And you know what that stems from? And this is the teaching. That stems from pride. That's where it comes from. And pride is, you know, it is one of the greatest and most subtle enemies that we have. And that's where I want to do this teaching. Let's go back to Proverbs 6, where we were, and we'll continue. So back in Proverbs 6, we read the verses 12 through 15. So we'll pick it up in Proverbs 
6.16, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven, are an abomination unto him. First on the list, a proud look. Listen, it's pretty clear. God hates pride and he hates proud looks. Go to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way, and the forward mouth do I hate. How clear could that be? God hates that. Go to the Proverbs 11. Verse 2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. I usually mention this during my Judgment Seat of Christ message for that word shame. Every believer, that should trigger your thoughts to be thinking about the Judgment Seat of Christ. Shame, ashamed. You do not want to be naked and ashamed at the Judgment Seat of Christ. I know you don't. Allow God to use you during the days of salvation. It's your choice. He's there. He's just waiting to use you at every opportunity. And he's got those opportunities minute by minute. Go to Proverbs 13, verse 10. Proverbs 13, 10. Only by pride cometh contention. I, I, don't, I don't know if I would have believed that, except that it's in my Bible, and I believe it. It's that simple. If you have any contention in your life so whatsoever, it stems from pride. And that might help you get over some of that contention. If you've got contention with anyone. Go to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14, verse 3. Wow, I just can't get these pages up. Proverbs 14, 3. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. Proverbs 15, 25. Proverbs 15, 25. The Bible says, The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Again, I mean, how many of these do we have to look at? Go to Proverbs uh, 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before his destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. That reminds me of King Isaiah. I mean, I could go on and on. Just the book of Proverbs alone has all these mentions about pride. And it's pretty darn clear what God thinks about pride. He hates it. Absolutely detests it. This reminds me of King Uzziah. By the way, do you know who the devil is? Satan? It's called in Job 41, the king of the children of pride. When you and I are actually exhibiting pride in our lives for any way, shape, or form, and for any reason, we are serving the king of the children of pride at that moment in time. I hope that's a sobering thought for you. King Uzziah, he was, a, he was actually a pretty good king, and he had some, I think the Bible called them cunning men. Uh, that he were in his domain. And uh, these cunning men invented engines, which were nothing more than machines of war. And they were things like uh, machines or weapons of war that would catapult heavy boulders and things at a great distance with somewhat of an accurate accuracy. They created machines, uh, these engines that's called, that would shoot lots of arrows all at once with some accuracy at a great distance. And King Uzziah had, he was very fortified, so to speak. You know, he built this huge wall around his, 
his uh, city he lived in or whatever. Anyway, totally felt he was impervious physically to anything. And what happened, the Bible says this, uh, when his heart, was lift, his heart was lifted up, when he became strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. You know what he did? He started to get so enamored with himself and the fact that he seemed impervious to any outside attacks or anything that he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go into the Holy of Holies and offer some incense up to the Lord. Now, he was king, but he was still not allowed to do that. That was reserved for the high priest and even the high priest one time a year. And before King Uzziah could actually uh, complete that idea of going in there and offering up that incense, the Lord stuck, struck him with leprosy, a type of sin, by the way. And he uh, had that leprosy the, last, the rest of his life. God hates pride. Now, I want you to go to one more verse that's going to be in the book of Psalms. Psalm 31. Because, and I, I don't know my Bible backwards and forwards, but as far as I know, this might be the only verse that you may think is an exception to the rule. And I'm going to show you why it's not. Psalm 31. The last couple of verses in that psalm Psalm 23 of Psalm 31. Verse 23. Excuse me. Psalm 31, verse 23. O love the Lord, all ye saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. You say, well, there, brother, I guess that, that, that's God showing that, that pride is a good thing. No. That verse, because you should already know the rest of the Bible, what I've just shown you, if just from those half a dozen verses in Proverbs, if God hates pride, why is this not a contradiction of that? And the, the word that tricks us up is the word rewardeth. I would say almost exactly 50% of the time the, 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 when the Bible, our King James Bible uses the word reward, it is a negative thing. It's not you getting something good, it's getting you something you deserve. So if you sow bad, you deserve bad, you reap bad, right? That's the law of sowing and reaping. Well, same with this reward. As a matter of fact, uh, 2 Samuel 3.39, the Bible says, The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. That's pretty clear. Uh, when Tim, uh, Paul's writing his, uh, we call it his swan song, his last full of testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. You know, I actually wrote someone, I'm not going to mention who, but I wrote someone a letter once that I was really in disagreement with the way they were behaving. This was a relative. And so I just, it was, and it wasn't tongue-in-cheek, but they had no idea what I was talking about. And I prayed that the Lord would reward them according to their deeds. And I don't think they knew what I meant, but I knew what I meant. And that's all I have to say about that. Listen, reward. That verse is a verse... If you've read your Proverbs, you know there's all kinds of verses that contrast something good with something bad. And that's what that verse is doing. It's contrasting something good, the faithful, with something bad. He preserveth the proud doer. He rewards them for that pride. It's a bad reward. Okay? Contrasting something good with something evil. Matter of fact, if you dove into this verse a little deeper, you could see where that proud doer could be a uh, a type of the Antichrist or the devil, however you want to say it. He is the proud doer. He is the king of the children of pride. So with that, 
basic foundation of pride, this is, I'll, I'm going to make a suggestion to y'all. By the way, before I take it down, how many of you have read this? Anybody? Anybody read this while I was up there? Wow. Okay. Well, we won't talk about that. <laughs> um, I suggest, because our enemy is subtle, and by the way, let me, before I do this, I'll say this. Words are important. When you and I say, I am proud, that's not good. And I'll, I'll demonstrate that in a while. But I'll tell you how important words are. Uh, have you ever heard of Kent Hovind, Dr. Kent Hovind? He debates, uh, he's, a, he's the first and foremost guy about debating uh, creation versus evolution. My son literally worked for Kent Hovind um, his last year at Pensacola Bible Institute. And uh, my son, uh, because he drove around and spent some time with Dr. Hovind, he stopped using the word evolve because things don't evolve the way they teach you that they do. You know what an evolutionist will say? They will say that given enough time, and it's usually billions of years, you can take a banana, and it will eventually, over time, in, evolve into a timber wolf. Now, that takes a whole lot of faith to believe that. I will just tell you that that is not the case, okay? That's not. Those are not equal. That will not happen. Uh, I remember uh, upon graduation from PBI, we had purchased a house there, and I put a big deck out in the backyard. And the backyard was small, but the deck was humongous. I think it ended up being just under 1,200 square feet. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That deck had seven levels. It had steps. It had a ramp. Uh, part of it was built around a 150-year-old oak tree. Uh, I had a little pottery kiln out there in my little pottery studio. We had an outdoor shop. All this other stuff. We had an outdoor ping pong table out there. And I finished this project, which was three years in the making, uh, right before graduation. And we invited a bunch of uh, the students from my class over to have a little barbecue out there. And I was sitting next to the, one of the benches with my son and one of my uh, classmates. And my classmate asked me, he said, Brother Angus, how did you ever design this thing? And I said, I didn't really design it. I said, you know what? I started with this slab that was already there, and I put another deck, I built a deck one step up, and maybe an 8 by 12 deck. I thought, you know, that's nice. I'm going to build another one. This one will make it 6 by 14, and I'll build that up another two steps or whatever. And I just, I said, it just evolved. <laughs> My son looked at me and said, Dad, it's still a deck. <laughs> yeah. It didn't evolve. It developed to become what you can. Things don't change from one kind to another. Words are important. And that is why I am suggesting, and you can take it or leave it, but I am suggesting that you and I no longer use this phrase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am yeah. proud. And I will challenge you right now to think of the exception to that. Listen, when I grew up, when I was growing up, I was taught, I mean, I'm asking you to fill in the blank here. I am proud of what? Uh, are you proud of your church? Are you proud of your pastor? Are you proud of your garden? Are you proud of the work you do? Be careful. God hates pride. And when you start saying, I am 
proud, I don't care what it is, you know what the emphasis is on? Yes. It's emphasis on mm-hmm. you. So, now, no matter, hey, and I was taught to take pride in my, the way I dress, take pride in my schoolwork, and all that stuff, we're taught that. And of course, I know, hey, I know you're proud of your grandchildren, aren't you? And you're proud of your kids, you're saying, all that stuff. But could you express the exact sentiments you want to express? How about this great phrase instead? I am grateful. Now, whether you say it or not, hopefully, maybe even say it, who are you grateful to? You're grateful Amen. to God. Amen. That's where the emphasis should be on him and not you. Grateful to God. And, and you, anything you said over here with that phrase, you could use this word, but you could, there's other words. How about, um, this is a common one. I am thankful. How about... I am happy. How about I am blessed? Uh, I'm grateful that I got this meeting this week. I'm thankful that you gave me a minute to go get my Bible. I'm happy that you showed up tonight. And I'm blessed to have a ministry and an opportunity at least to do something that might potentially survive the fiery child of Jesus Christ. I certainly don't want to be proud of those things. And you shouldn't either. I would encourage you, change the way you talk. The enemy is subtle, and he will get pride in your life, and that is not a good thing. You know what we need to be? We need to be broken of that pride. We need to let go of it. And sometimes that's not easy. None of us, because of pride, we don't want to recognize pride in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it can be subtle. It's going to be so so. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 21. Have you ever thought about the center letter in the word pride? It's the letter I. It's the same center letter in the word sin, the same center letter in the word Lucifer. Wow. Uh, the I is the center letter in the word Laodicean. Very and how about this 13 letter word 13 letters center word I unforgiveness man pride 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 look at verse Matthew chapter 21 Down toward the end of that chapter. My page is unstuck here. Matthew 21, we'll begin in verse 42. This is uh, Jesus saith unto them. Matthew 21, 42. Did ye Never read in the scriptures. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. 
but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. What's the real pep message here? What's the real point of that? It's this. One way or another, you and I are going to be broken if that's what God needs to do to us. So the thing is, if you don't cooperate with his first attempt to break you, what's God going to do? Well, you're asking him to prolong the process and probably intensify the process. You know, um, I was fortunate enough to get to play some pickleball this morning uh, with Brother Kip. And afterwards, I was talking to one of the fellows I met who I noticed he's wearing a bracelet. And I was asking what that was. I thought it, had to, I thought it was a religious or something. It happened to be his, uh, his son died in Afghanistan some years ago now, quite a few years ago. And of course, it was devastating him. And then he told me some other things uh, about his son, how his wife not only suffered with the death of her, the son's wife, his daughter-in-law, not only suffered through the death of her husband, but sometime before that, I think one of their children was killed in an automobile. So some of these things. And of course, he was mad at God and all this. Now, I didn't have a whole lot to say to him, but I'm hoping if I see him again, I might take it a little further. Because instead of getting mad at God, when we're going through those difficult times, we should be asking God, drawing close to God, asking God, what are you trying to show me? Because mm -hmm. God has got his purposes for those things. Yes. And I really believe, it's kind of easy to judge from the outside, but I believe God's trying to get all of this guy's heart. You know? And what's it going to take? How much frustration, anger, whatever, discomfort, uh, tragedy does it take sometimes for God to get a hold of a person's heart? Yeah. Uh, no, 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 that's a lot of supposition. But from the conversation I have, so far it hasn't drawn him closer to God. I know in the beginning at least it drew him further away. He seems to be coping with it now. He realizes he's got a lot of grandchildren to support. And some of, I think one of his son's children was actually born while he was on his last <coughs> tour, the tour that killed him, or born shortly after he passed away. She told me, you know, so I'm saying, this child never even knew his father. And the guy, the thing about it is, that kid sounded amazing. Just amazing. I know Richard has probably told Jan about it. But anyway, um, yeah, and, and the father had a great relationship and all that. But I'm just saying, listen, I recognize in my own life the thing that got me to surrender to the Lord uh, back in 2003, having been a professing Christian for 30 years, uh, at, was when I was tremendously afflicted and had a basic understanding about the jealousy of Christ. But looking back on my life before that surrender, that time of surrender, I started to realize, you know, that God put me under uh, kind of a more mild form of that affliction about 10 or 12 years before that. And then even 10 or 12 years before that one, there was an even more mild thing. What I'm getting at is that finally, the third time around, it was like no stops fired. This is it. It was like I thought, and I totally always expected to die. It was that bad. But that's what it took for me to get my focus off myself and my hard head and try to wake up, Lord, what are you trying to show me? And that's when I finally surrendered. I'm going to take the time to, to read something from this book here. 
This guy is amazing. His name is Richard Yerby, and he wrote this book, Creature versus Creator. And at the very end of it, by the way, we're the creature, and we know who the creator is. At the end of this book, he talks about this. It's got to do with surrendering. And he says, um, ever since Lucifer declared uh, the first war by announcing, I will ascend, countless wars have been fought as creatures battled to ascend and other creatures battled to defend themselves. Okay? And he says this, the war of greatest significance is the one between the creature and the creator. Every human creature on the face of this earth is fighting to some extent in this battle. This war of all wars is also a paradox of all paradoxes because it is impossible for the creature, that's us, to gain any victory by fighting in this war. We're fighting against God. That's not going to be successful on our part. In fact, he is guaranteed, the creature is guaranteed defeat simply by engaging in battle. And the more fiercely he fights, the more loss he suffers. This war is a paradox of all paradoxes because the creator, by his nature, is no enemy to the creature. He only wants the best for his beloved creature. Therefore, the most profitable thing that the creature, that's us, can do is to surrender to the creator and completely cease to war against him in all areas of conflict. You know, another great paradox, he says, of this war is that the human creature who comes the closest to total surrender in this war is not slain or destroyed uh, or treated as a lackey. Rather, uh, the creator will crown him or her, and for all eternity, he or she will be highly honored. He's talking about the reward. He's given out of the judgment seat of Christ indirectly. And, and that's true. So it goes to the, the conclusion this way. He says, so how about doing the wisest thing you can do and cease to do battle against your creator? Wave the white flag of your heart to the fullest and tell your creator, I surrender all. Or you could sum it up by saying, let go. Let go of that thing or things that may be hindering your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can use you to your fullest potential so he can mold you and shape you into that vessel. What I'm getting at is this. Uh, I'm talking about you letting go. I'm talking about you surrendering so that you can serve so that you'll be prepared to stand before him one day at the judgment seat of Christ. It all begins with us letting go. And that's what happens if we need to be broken or something. I want you to think about this. Salvation for lost mankind was only made possible through our broken Savior. You think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as we wrap this up uh, and how God uses broken things. Christ had to take upon himself, uh, I'd say, the, the ego of fallen mankind and uh, since man didn't want to break himself or wouldn't humble himself, Christ humbled himself and became obedient. Is that what the Bible says? Into the death of the cross? Yes. I mean, think about Jesus Christ the last days of his earthly ministry. You know, when he was with those disciples in the upper room, knowing that he was just hours away from that cross, he took out some bread. 
and he blessed it, and then he broke it. And he said to the disciples, this is my body broken for you. Now that quote, which is in our King James Bible, you will not get that from Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. That quote is from the Apostle Paul. Now the Apostle Paul, in all his writings, only quotes the Lord Jesus Christ three times in the 13 epistles that he wrote, 14 if you count the book of Hebrews, and that's one of them. This is my body broken for you. I'll leave it to you to figure out where he, how did he get that quote from the Lord Jesus Christ if he wasn't in that room? He wasn't even saved for years until years after that. Tells me to spend some time with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ leaves that upper room, and shortly thereafter, he finds himself in that Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to God the Father, and he says this, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. At that very moment in time, the Lord Jesus Christ had a broken will. He left that garden and just moments later really found himself at that cross on Calvary. And some of the last words out of his mouth were, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So not only was he showed us a picture in that upper room of a broken body, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had a broken will, but those last words out of his mouth indicated a broken fellowship with God the Father for the first and only time during his earthly ministry. Christ did all that for us, and we're afraid to allow him to gently, mercifully break us, if that's what we need. Shouldn't be that way. I want you to be thinking about some things Saints, I'm talking to you, people that are believers. Especially, you're going to be standing before God one day at the judgment seat of Christ. He's asking you to allow Him to begin to use you to your fullest potential, maybe more than He's ever used you before. And if He's going to do that, He needs you to probably let go of something, maybe several things. Maybe it's something obvious to you, something that's physical. Maybe it's uh, the time you spend in front of that screen, whether it's on your phone or your TV set or your computer. Uh, maybe you need to let go of the uh, desire or the, uh, the obsession with that new vehicle or having an extra vehicle or, or earning the money to get that super nice vehicle or whatever it might be, or the new boat or the second house. You know, I mean, these are big ticket items. It could be something like that. Uh, maybe you're obsessed with a sport that you just need to let go of. It could be something like money. It could be something like education. It could be something like drugs, maybe not illegal drugs. Maybe it's prescription drugs that God wants you to let go of. Now, I'm not advocating you, you know, don't follow your doctor's instructions or whatever, but you need to be proactive, and you need to be, I forget what the exact term is, but you need to be in charge of your health. You can't be relying on some guy that's got a white coat and a degree that says MD. I mean, maybe you got one that cares enough for you. But I want to tell you something. Most doctors are try, taught to treat people as the average person. And nobody really is the average person. We are all individuals. And you have to be in charge of your own health. You are the one that's responsible. And you need to take that responsibility. It's in your best effort. 
God wants you to be all that you can be. He does want you to rely on him, but he expects you to take your uh, part in that effort. Listen, especially for women, maybe you need to let go of that fashion, or maybe you need to let go of um, maybe some children or grandchildren or parents or grandparents. These are not easy things sometimes that you can let go of. Maybe it's something that's a little more non-physical. Something like pride, obviously. How about bitterness? How about unforgiveness? Amen. How about rebellion? How about uh, fear of man? Amen. How about indifference to lost souls? I mean, you know, the list is never ending. I'm just encouraging you to think of some things that you may need to let go of. Why don't you let God uh, make your everyday decisions by letting go of your independence, letting go of your self-centeredness. Maybe you want to let God use you to minister to some saint or some lost soul for that matter. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to have to let go of your independence and your, not, I mean, you're going to have to let go of that comfort zone you spend all that time in. Yes, yeah. And that self-centeredness. It reminds me a lot of, of being accommodated. It's going to use you to minister. We talked about that during Sunday school. Maybe God uh, wants to heal a difficult relationship that is bothering you right now. I know he'll do his part, but he wants you to do your part by letting go of that unforgiveness or bitterness or self thing, you know, like self-esteem, self-pity. Maybe God wants to shape you into a vessel unto honor. You want to let God do that? Then let go of your inflexibility. Let go of your self-control. Empty and broken, I came back to him, <coughs> a vessel unworthy, so marred with sin. But he did not despair, he started over again. And I bless the day he didn't throw the clay away over and over. He molds me and makes me into his likeness. He fashions the clay. If I am a vessel of honor one day, then it's all because Jesus didn't throw the clay away. He is the potter, and I am the clay molded in his image 
He wants me to stay. But when I stumble and I fall and my vessel breaks, he just picks up the pieces. He doesn't throw the clay away. This is me. <laughs> Shall the thing form saying to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? <laughs> over and over he molds me and makes me into his likeness. He fashions the clay. If I am a vessel of honor one day, then it's all because Jesus did not throw this clay away. God can use that thing, and he can use you, and he can use me, believe it or not. Heavenly Father, we sure to thank you for these pictures you've given us. Lord, I pray.